This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Tim Geiger about the effect of pornography on the church. Tim is a teaching elder who formerly served as the president of Harvest USA, an organization equipping churches in bringing the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform the lives of those affected by sexual sin. Tim now serves as executive director of Children's Jubilee Fund in Philadelphia. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered in June 2019 at the PCA General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. Let's listen to Tim Geiger as he helps us consider the effect of pornography on the church. My name is Tim Geiger. I lead a ministry called Harvest USA, which uh, has been around for 36 years. Uh, We were started by 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Originally uh, as an outreach to the unchurched gay male community in the city. And over the course of 36 years, we became our own uh, independent nonprofit organization. We still have very close ties to, uh, to the PCA. I am a PCA teaching elder, as is my coworker, Jim Widenar, in the back. Um, and uh, one of the, the things that we do at Harvest USA is we help men and women and families in the church who are impacted by different kinds of sexual sin and brokenness. Uh, but we also equip the church to talk about these issues uh, in an authoritative and, and uh, helpful way in order that God's people would be built up and walk in repentance. And so today, we're going to be talking about the effects of pornography uh, on the church and how to help people who struggle with it. Uh, and I would encourage you as we, as we enter into this conversation to think about pornography as not being uh, just looking at Uh, an image on a screen, but uh, to think about it in the context of porneia, sexual immorality in in scripture, which has many different connotations and many different uh, ways of working itself out. So uh, we're talking about really here any misuse of God's good gifts of sex and sexuality within the church. Uh, This is how you you, you walk with people who uh, experience the consequences of that sin. So Jim is passing out uh, a copy of the latest issue of Harvest USA magazine. Uh, This is a magazine we publish free of charge twice a year. It's not a newsy magazine that kind of tells you what we're doing. Uh, This is more of a journal that is written to equip God's people to understand sex, sexuality, and gender from a biblical perspective and to help people in the church who struggle with those things. Uh, So... um, This issue in particular, uh, I think, is uh, apropos for what we're talking about this morning, 
because uh, this issue talks about a new initiative of Harvest USA called the Sexually Faithful Church, which is something that we're starting this fall that uh, is meant to equip the church to talk proactively about God's uh, designs for sex, sexuality, and gender, and to equip the leaders in, in Christ's church to disciple people at every age level in the church to learn how to live out God's design with increasing uh, obedience and joy. So if you would like to receive this magazine, uh, you should have also received a Connect card. Uh, just fill this out and drop it in the, the gray basket in the back of the room on your way out, and uh, we will get you on the mailing list for these magazines. There are also a couple of handouts, uh, which uh, we don't have enough to give to everyone but if you want a copy to take with you, they are also on the back table. Um, just th they'll give you some in-depth information in uh, some areas uh, that we're not able to cover in an hour this morning. One is called Frequently Asked Questions About Same-Sex Attraction. It will apply some of what we're talking about today specifically for people in the church who struggle with same-sex attraction. Uh, the other is called Redemptive Responses when family members identify as transgender. And again, that will apply what we're talking about today to people in the church who are struggling with gender dysphoria. Back at our exhibit booth uh, in the exhibit hall, we have other free articles for you as well. One uh, talks about how to help your kids establish sexual accountability, and another one is called proactive accountability, uh, which is the model that we teach for helping one another in the church to walk in repentance. So, the last thing I will draw your attention to is uh, you should have a handout with the title of today's talk on it. Uh, and this is what we're going to be following as we go through the, the presentation. Does anyone not have a handout? Great. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we are, we are so thankful to you for your gift of the church to us. Uh, Lord, we know that we are your people. We know that you have uh, put us uh, together in order to glorify you and worship you and make you known to the world and to make you known to one another within the church. But Lord, how I thank you that you have given us the church. How I thank you that you have made us members of the same body. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this talk today, we would know how to encourage and, and to walk with others in the church who struggle with sexual sin and how to build them up in Christ, how to point them toward you, how to help them walk in faith and repentance. Lord, I, I pray that you would bring to mind to, for the men and women here specific ministry uh, situations that they have in their churches and that they would know how to apply this to those people and help them to walk in repentance and newness of life. Lord, we commit this time to you. Uh, Lord, protect me from saying anything that would be wrong or offensive. And Lord, uh, may uh, the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But let's talk about why the church needs to talk about sexual sin and sexual struggle. Uh, well, there are many reasons. Let me just give you three. The first is 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, verse 13, that there's no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. And sexual temptation, sexual sin, sexual immorality is something that the church has been struggling with virtually since day one. And we, I think we are naive if we think that simply because we don't hear about people in the church struggling sexually today, that sexual struggle does not exist. One of the realities we're going to look at in just a moment is that people who experience uh, sexual temptation and who engage in sexual sin in the church will tend to keep that sexual sin private, to hide it, because they're afraid of their sin being exposed. They don't want to experience public shame uh, as a result of, uh, of their sin being exposed. But that said, there, there is no temptation that exists that is not common. And the men and women uh, in our churches today uh, are, are being bombarded with different kinds of sexual images, sexual situations, sexualized uh, images um, that are impacting the ways in which they think about God and themselves and other people. And we need to remember that all aspects of our created nature, including our understanding of, of sex and sexuality and gender, have been distorted by the fall. Every way in which we perceive ourselves as as sexual beings, every way in which we live out sexual desire, every way in which we pursue one another relationally has been broken because of the fall into sin. And we need to remember that sexual temptation, sexual struggle, and sin are being experienced by Christians this day. The second reason is if we remain silent, we miss an opportunity to address one of the chief ways in which church members and their families are falling into idolatry and unbelief. I had a brief conversation with a couple of teaching elders after the last session about this, and, and I, I won't go into it in depth here because we, we don't have time, but uh, one, of the, one of the chief ways in which sexual sin is unique from other kinds of sin. And this comes from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 and 19, where, where Paul has that, uh, that message where he says that uh, the person who sins against his own body, I'm sorry, the person who sins sexually sins against his own body, and he makes this, this statement that sexual sin is different than other kinds of sin. Uh, one of the ways in which it is different is it makes it more difficult to have earnest, uh, loving genuine, authentic relationships with other people in the church. You know, we, we read in, in 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one, one, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And for people who engage in sexual sin, there is something distinct that happens to their capacity to love other people earnestly from a pure heart in the church that, that's diminished. When, when I see other people as potential sex partners, I can't view my brothers and sisters in the church in the same way. I, I see them as potential sex partners. Or, like I said a moment ago, I hide myself from them because I'm afraid that they will see what's going on in my mind and my heart and in my body, 
and I'll feel particularly ashamed because of the sexual sin in which I've engaged. But not only that, I feel ashamed toward God. And so I stay away from him as well. And so these are some of the chief ways in which people in the church fall into idolatry and unbelief. Because when we engage in sexual sin, we become less and less likely to believe the promises of Scripture and to believe that God's grace really does avail for us because we feel so dirty and so unclean and so unable to extract ourselves from from what is becoming a lifestyle of sin. Let's look at uh, just how many people in the church are struggling sexually. This comes from uh, a Barna study. Um, They say that 51% of Boys and men in the church over the age of 13 use pornography at least once a month. This is from 2016, so it's a couple of years old. They say that 70% of youth pastors have said that at least one teen has sought their help for pornography use over the last year. 20% of youth pastors themselves currently struggle with porn, and I would say that number is is low. This this depends on people accurately self-reporting. And I I think a lot of youth pastors probably would not accurately self-report. They say that one-third of females ages 13 to 24 use porn at least once a month. And then uh, Christianity Today, uh, many years ago, said that 40% of pastors use pornography at least once a year. And again, I think that that number could be low as well, especially considering this statistic is now 18 years old. But you can see that there are a lot of people in the church who are looking at pornography. And these aren't just people in the church who who are looking at uh, videos that they shouldn't look at online. These aren't just people who are are, uh, fantasizing about other people uh, in ways that they ought not to. These... These are people whose minds and hearts are being shaped by those behaviors so that they develop worldviews that lead them to fall away from the living God. Isn't that what we're warned about in Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13, where we're called to have other people in the church exhort us to the truth daily in order that our hearts wouldn't be hardened by sin? Because the writer of Hebrews tells us, if our hearts are hardened by sin, what will happen is we will fall away from the living God. And that is the chief fallout from pornography use in the church. That even though people may show up in in the chairs on Sunday morning, even though young people may come to youth group, even though giving might increase 5% a year, the, the majority of people in the church who are using pornography are believing with less and less integrity that God loves them. And the church is becoming less and less the church. The third reason to talk about this is that sexual sin uh, is and always has been part of the church. There, there are numerous examples in the Old Testament of sexual sin. Uh, Sexual sin and and sexual impropriety in the New Testament is is one of Paul's chief talking points. Uh, And this is a point I made in the last session earlier this morning that uh, Paul spent more 
time, he, he uses more words in 1 Corinthians to talk about sexual sin than about any other sin issue in the church. And that's because sexual sin was so important, uh, so prevalent, rather, in the church at that time. And that was 1,900 years ago. Uh, we're, we're facing, I, I don't think people are necessarily more sinful today, but we're facing a situation today where we have access to sexualized images that give us the ability to give expression to those deceitful desires in ways that people in Paul's time never could have. We, we have sex on demand through, through devices like this. And we need to help our people learn to not just uh, throw these things away, uh, but we, we need to help them learn how to exercise self-control. Uh, and some examples of sec how sexual sin has uh, always been a part of the church. This is interesting, by the way. I, I won't go into a lot of detail, but uh, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 5 through 7 a lot about sexual sin in the church. Uh, at the end of 2 Corinthians, which is written several years later, he, he talks about it again. And he, he's talking about a, another journey to the church in Corinth, which he never makes. But he says, I, I hope that I won't have to be severe in my use of discipline when I come to see you again, for many who have been engaged in sexual immorality have not repented. And so even years after his initial entreaties to them, and after years of praying with them and, and working with the leaders in the Corinthian church, there are still people who are unrepentant. And, and Paul is still encouraging them to turn and walk in repentance before it's too late. So let's look at some of the reasons why you might not be aware that there is sexual struggle in the church. What are some of the obstacles that keep people from coming forward? Well, one of the chief ones is shame. Uh, people in the church uh, who experience sexual sin feel ashamed. They feel uniquely ashamed. This is one of the, the defining characteristics of sexual sin, that because we misuse our bodies in a particular way that does violence to the image of God within us and does violence to uh, all of the things that sex and, and marriage were given to us to, to represent in, in the world, we, we feel particularly ashamed, and we don't want other people to, to see that. We, we feel guilt because we realize that we have transgressed God's holy law. There, there's fear of exposure. We don't want a loss of reputation uh, to ourselves because other people know what we've seen, what we've done, what we're thinking. We don't want them to uh, think of us as less... Uh, less than uh, the prettied up specimen that we present ourselves as on Sunday mornings. We, we don't want to be judged by them as being uh, a particularly bad sinner. People who experience sexual sin participate in a, a culture of deception and self-deception, which means that the average person who misuses uh, sex and sexuality and who looks at pornography lies about it. And, and they lie about it to protect themselves and to enable themselves to continue engaging in the behavior. That, that's the deceptive part, but the self-deceptive part 
is where, as a Christian, they say, this really isn't that bad. I can stop this whenever I want to. This, this really isn't harming me. See, I can put down my phone and walk away and not be changed. It's not really hurting my relationship with the Lord. Uh, they might believe I'm the only one like this. No one else in the church struggles the way that I do. And we know that this isn't true, but someone might feel that this is true because they don't hear other people in the church talking about their struggles with sex and sexuality uh, or with pornography. And even if they do, they might hear about those struggles talked about in a, in a triumphalistic sense. Well, I used to struggle that way. Or, you know, I, uh, you know sometimes we, we make things sound just a little better than they actually are. We don't give the entire truth. And so someone's life may be burning down because, they've, because they do spend four hours a night looking at pornography. But they might just say, well, I need you to pray for me because I've had some lustful thoughts. And, and in hearing that, uh, you might think that person is far better off. They're, they're far more sanctified than I am. And this sense of, of being different and being worse than others in the church can keep people stuck in silence. Um, sometimes we, we either hear uh, in the church or we tend to believe that real Christians don't struggle with sexual sin. There might be a fear of church discipline. Am I going to be publicly humiliated and, and censured by the church? A lot of Christians who struggle sexually have made prior attempts at change, and those, those attempts have not been uh, successful. And, and by that I mean they, they haven't endured. Maybe they've lasted for weeks or months, but they give back in, and when they give back in, they feel defeated. They, they feel as though this is something that is impossible for them to overcome. And I will tell you, a lot of times when, when this is the case, uh, and when people feel this way, it's because they've tried on their own to just tough it out. At Harvest USA, we call it white knuckling. Like when you're, you're on a roller coaster uh, and you're holding on to the, the crash bar with all of your might, and your, your knuckles turn white because you're holding on so tight, you're exerting all of your effort to protect yourself. If that's all you can throw at any sin pattern, you're not going to do well. Because we need the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us in order to transform not only our behavior, but our desires as well. And we need others in the church to help us do that. There's a functional misunderstanding of grace. A lot of people who struggle with sexual sin in the church believe that God's grace applies to other people differently than it applies to them. See, God helps other people with their stuff, but he doesn't help me with mine. I've prayed that he would take away these desires from me, and he hasn't done it. And there's a misunderstanding of the real problem. And what I mean by that is that there is a problem behind the problem. There's a sin behind the sin. Uh, when we talk about pornography, and that sin is idolatry. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 15, verses 18 through 20, uh, when his disciples have come back from the, the marketplace with the Gentiles, and the Pharisees scold them for not having washed their hands because they've been, they've been in a public place with Gentiles. They're ceremonially unclean. Uh, and they failed to wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus says, well, you don't understand how this works. 
It's not what you do that makes you unclean. Everything that is unclean, uh, everything that makes you unclean, rather, is already in your heart. And then he goes on to, to give this litany of sin patterns, all of which come out of the same sinful heart. And, and the reason why there is a varied expression of sin coming out of the heart is because we're, we're unique people who live in unique circumstances with unique personalities, unique relationships. No, no two of us have exactly the same experiences. And so uh, what, what might lead one person to struggle with one pet sin is different from how another person might struggle with their pet sin but it comes out of the same exact idolatry in the heart. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45, that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. He's not just talking about words. He's talking about everything that comes out of our hearts. And essentially what he's saying is what we do shouldn't surprise us because it's just emanating from what's already inside of us. So this diagram is at the top of page two on your handouts. And it illustrates what some of the characteristic patterns of idolatry are that people struggle with. And as you look at this diagram and you look at these 10 categories of desire, uh, you, you might think, well, there's nothing particularly bad about any of these. Uh, and I would say you're right. Each one of these categories of desire is in some way, shape, or form uh, uh, representative of who we are as God's image bearers. We, we were created to experience love and to show love to God and to others uh, because God is love. We were created to have a positive self-image because we're made in the image of God. We were created to receive and give affirmation because God affirms us. He, he's an affirming God, and so on down the list. You might even say, well, when you get down to something like control, well, you know, the control's not good. Controlling people are bad. I don't like controlling people. But this is living out the creation mandate, right? To subdue the earth, to, to master and, and steward everything and reign over everything that God has created. And so what happens is we, we, we possess these desires, but because we're sinners and everything about us has been distorted by the fall into sin, and because we live in a sinful world and the, the people with whom we're in relationship don't act toward us in the ways that they should all of the time, th these desires wind up becoming too important to us. And we say things like, I, I need to have these desires met in, in the ways that I want, or on my time uh, table. When that doesn't happen, we become disappointed that these desires aren't being met. We, we long to have them met. Ultimately, we wind up feeling discouraged, and we despair, and we say, this really hurts that this desire isn't being met. And so I need to get this desire met, and I don't care what it takes. And when we get to this side of the diagram, this, this is when we, we turn the otherwise benign desire into an idol because we say, I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice anything in order to get, to get this desire met. I'm willing to sacrifice 
my relationship with the Lord. I'm willing to sacrifice my relationships with other people. I'm willing to sacrifice my money, my time, my heart, uh, my possessions, anything, in order to, to love this idol. Now, how does this play into someone who struggles with pornography? Let me give you a couple of examples. Someone, let's talk about a man who feels unaffirmed. Perhaps he feels unaffirmed in his marriage. He feels as though his wife uh, criticizes him more than she compliments him. Let's say that at at his work, uh, he feels as though he's always behind. His boss doesn't uh, acknowledge the, the good things that he does, but his boss points out every time he's late turning something in. This this man may feel as though he, he's, he's a loser. He's, he's lacking in affirmation no matter what relationship he's in. And so by turning to pornography and entering into a fantasy uh, with an individual or about an individual uh, who is not going to reject him, he, he feels a sense of affirmation. Through entering into that fantasy where the, the, the woman or the man in that Uh, in that video or in that fantasy is going to love him and affirm him perfectly and say, you are the one I desire. You are the one I was created to serve. He gets a sense of being affirmed. Does that make sense? Let's talk about uh, a young woman. Uh, Perhaps a young woman who uh, feels as though she doesn't have a a very good self-image. A lot of a lot of young men struggle with self-image as well, but I, I think it's uh, more of an issue for, for young women than young men. And let's say that this young woman doesn't necessarily look like the other 16-year-olds in her class. Uh, maybe she uh, doesn't have the same kind of, of physical attributes. She doesn't feel as, as desirable. She sees other boys uh, moving toward the, the girls in her class, but not toward her. And so one of the ways that she can feel uh, more loved, more desired, more, more cherished, a way that she can overcome the flaws that she perceives in her own self-image is to enter into a fantasy in uh, pornography and have a, a man or a woman in that pornography say, you are beautiful. I will lay down everything that I have in order to worship you. And so she gets a sense of having a better self-image. So you you can apply that same uh, thinking to any one of these desires. And I would encourage you to think that uh, all of the people in all of your churches are struggling with many of these desires every day. And sex talking specifically about pornography here, but, but sex is one means to an end to gratify some of these desires. And so in terms of, of addressing these things pastorally, yes, you, you, you do want to hold individuals accountable for, for uh, their use of pornography and their entrance into fantasy, But pastorally, you want to help them to address some of these underlying issues as well and take them to the throne of grace. The Bible compares the church to a house. If that's the case, the PCA Administrative Committee is the plumbing of the church. Its work is mostly hidden from view and you don't appreciate it 
until it breaks. The AC provides churches, presbyteries, and the assembly with the expertise and action needed to keep their ministries moving forward. They don't set the agenda for the PCA. They just make sure its agenda is accomplished. Their vital work depends on generous churches and individuals like you. Learn more about them at PCAAC.org. So this is point 3B, sexual sin or, or any sexual sin pattern, or any uh, sin pattern rather, becomes a counterfeit resolution to, to these desires. It, it provides a momentary sense of relief, a momentary sense of satisfaction, but it doesn't last because, because the, it, 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 it's not a real satisfaction. It's just a momentary gratification. You're, you're just scratching the itch, but then that itch itches again in a few minutes. And the temptation that people experience offers a pleasing means to satisfy the desires of one's heart. And so from James uh, chapter 1, we, we have this passage that says that, that uh, sin isn't the, the real start of the, the process of degradation and, and spiritual death. It's actually desires that are at the beginning of the process. James says that uh, if you're tempted, don't think that God is tempting you. It's actually the desires in your own heart that are tempting you. And temptation just gives you a way to express those desires that are already there. And so help folks to realize that those desires that we looked at a moment ago are, are really seminal in addressing um, repentance. Let's talk a little bit about repentance. Genuine repentance is different from behavioral modification. Behavioral modification is just stopping the behavior. Genuine repentance is repenting of those desires that, that lead to it. And genuine repentance has a twofold focus. One is that we grow in our fear of the Lord, but the other is that we flee from sin. You know, sometimes when we talk about repentance in the church, we, we just talk about the fleeing from sin right? We, we say that repentance means you don't look at pornography anymore. Repentance means that you put some sort, of, uh, some sort of accountability software on your device. Repentance means that you meet with another brother or another sister once a week and you sit down and you talk about what you've been thinking about and what you've been doing. Those things aren't bad. But that can't be the limit or the extent of helping someone walk in repentance because we have to help them grow in their understanding of who the Lord is and an understanding of his grace. To fear the Lord doesn't mean you fear his wrath. To fear the Lord means you, you fall to your face in awe and wonder because you know something of the majesty and the depth of his love for you in, in, in Jesus Christ. And there are many examples in Scripture of where these two concepts uh, are brought together. One that I'll highlight just for a moment is Romans 2.4. Paul uh, is talking to the believers in Rome and he's saying, don't you realize that God's kindness is meant to lead to your repentance? And, and notice the order of operations there. God's kindness, his kindness toward you through the person and work of Jesus Christ, his kindness 
toward you through giving you his spirit, his kindness toward you in restraining his wrath, his kindness toward you in giving you brothers and sisters in the church, his kindness toward you in warning you over and over and over again about how you're putting yourself in danger. Don't you realize that his kindness is meant to lead to your repentance because he doesn't want to see you destroyed. God doesn't exist to punish you. God exists to make you a son, to make you a daughter. Uh, And we need to help people in the church who struggle with pornography or with any kind of sexual sin, or, or any kind of sin for that matter, realize that these two concepts always have to go together. Uh, another passage not up there that I, I love uh, to refer to is Romans 12, verses 1, through t- 1 and 2, rather, which is where Paul talks about uh, making our lives living sacrifices to, to serve the Lord. But he begins that uh, verse by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, on behalf of God's mercies. So even even that exhortation to lay down your life daily for the Lord comes because God has been merciful to you. So we we can never afford to decouple God's grace from behavior change. So what are some ways to help someone walk in increasing faith and repentance? We want to, to do many things to help them. We want to help them develop a theological understanding of grace through preaching and teaching and counseling, and we need to communicate that grace is given only to sinners. Why would perfect people need grace? We, we are all sinners in the church. Martin Luther said that we're all beggars. It's just that some of us know where the bread is, and we're called to take others with us to find uh, that, that source of nourishment. We, we see many examples in Scripture of, of how grace is given to, to sinful people. Uh, this is just, you know, these are five examples out of thousands uh, in Scripture. And I would encourage you in your, in your preaching, in your uh, public teaching, in your pastoral prayers, in your counseling, in, in the discipleship that you do with other people in the church, to communicate that God loves to give grace to sinners, And there is no amount of sin that uh, reaches the limit of God's grace. And and I say this because I'm sure everyone in this room would affirm that. But I say this because the average sexual sinner, because he or she thinks that they are different from others in the church, they will think that they have exhausted God's grace. They will think that they have wearied him, that, that they are now objects of his wrath and are not able to to be recipients of his grace any longer. And I would encourage you to to take them to passages like this. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7 is a beautiful, beautiful passage that talks about our innate inability to please God and yet how God chooses to love us and serves us. So help them to develop a theological understanding of grace but then help them to develop a practical understanding of grace through your preaching and teaching and counseling and discipleship. And what I mean uh, by 
the difference between a practical understanding of grace and a theological understanding of grace is that grace is meant to deepen our affection for God and our obedience to his will. And so grace isn't just uh, you know, your, your parents coming and paying off uh, your credit card bill to, you know, to get you out of that monthly payment and you feel a sense of relief. Grace is meant to drive us more deeply into relationship with God. There are several examples of this uh, in, in Scripture. Um, Titus 2, verses 11 through 14 is a, is a beautiful, beautiful passage that talks about this. Let me just read it for you quickly. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So, what, what I'm encouraging you to do as you, as you preach, as you teach, as you counsel, as you disciple others in the church, is, is to take men and women and young people who struggle with pornography to, to passages like this and to help them realize that God loves us and, and calls us to walk in, in repentance, not just because it's the right thing to do, but for the very thing it says here in verse 14, that he gave uh, himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Christ wants us to be in relationship with him forever. He wants us to enjoy him. He wants us to live out the, the, the answer to the first um, uh, question in the Heidelberg Catechism. He wants us to enjoy him. And the average person who struggles sexually in the church does not enjoy God. They see him as an enemy. They see him as a judge. They see other people in the church as as folks who will stand in judgment over them. And so, a practical understanding of grace means not only are your sins forgiven, and not only uh, does God's love... uh, continue to flow uh, into your heart, but God wants you to be transactionally in relationship with him and with others in the church. He wants you to enjoy the benefits of that fellowship. Help them through discipleship. Discipleship isn't uh, what we often think of in, in uh, the church um, I know that in the majority of the churches that I've been involved with uh, from childhood on up, discipleship has been kind of rote instruction. It, it's been memorizing the catechism. It's been uh, going to Sunday school. It's been uh, reading books. And, and all of that is, is great. Those are, are good tools to help us understand who God is and, and how we relate to him. But real discipleship needs to answer this question. How does the life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus help me in the particular ways in which I struggle with unbelief and idolatry? 
We, we need to help the men and women and young people in our churches grapple with this question. If everything that the Bible tells me about Jesus is true, how does that help me when I'm tempted to look at pornography? How does that help me when I feel unaffirmed? How does that help me when I want to turn to pornography in order to feel comfort? How does that help me when I feel like a loser? How does that help me when I feel alone? And how do we, how do we, how do we get there? How do we move into that other realm of discipleship where we help people to really grapple with on-the-ground questions like this, it's through one-on-one -on -one relationship. The, the, the formal training in, in discipleship is, is important, but it can't be divorced from the kind of relationship that we see Paul talk about in Titus chapter 2, where he says that he, he calls some men in the church to work with other men in the church, to teach them self-control, to teach them how to live godly lives. Uh, he calls some women in the church to work with other women in the church, to teach them the same things. We, we need to be building one another up daily. And, and these kinds of, of discipleship relationships have to happen in, in the context of, of real life. They have to happen in real time. They, they have to happen around real events. Because what we do in discipleship is we help one another develop different worldviews that tell us how to interpret the different stimuli that we're experiencing uh, in, in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives. And so help them through discipleship to, to grapple with that question. And, and there is no one answer to that question. That question is something that's going to have to be revisited every day for the rest of their lives. Help them through, oh, I'm sorry, um, this discipleship has to be proactive, which means uh, we in the church need to encourage uh, and equip people to uh, engage in it. It has to be friendship-based. That's what I talked about in, in terms of this addressing the, the everyday events of life. It has to be ongoing, which means it's not just a 13-week study we do. This is, this is a, a relationship that goes on for years. Uh, and it's idol-centric, which means that it keeps going back to those idols we looked at earlier in the presentation, and it, it, it forces the person to grapple with, how are these idols controlling my life? How are these idols controlling my behavior? You want to help them through modeling and expecting transparency. And what transparency means is living openly and in, in the light of community, not attempting to deceive others by either what I do or what I don't do. And what this means is that I give permission to other people in the church to not just see what I've been looking at online, but I give people in the church permission to see me in real life, to ask me questions about my underlying motives, to ask me questions about my idols. I, I give these people in 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 the church, permission to pursue me if they see me heading down a bad path. I give these people in the church permission to tell me, hey, Tim, what I see in your life doesn't mirror uh, what you say you want to do. And so how can I help you? How can I help you move more toward what you say you want to do in terms of, of repentance? 
transparency is the correlate of accountability and discipleship. And so uh, what, what you read about in the proactive accountability uh, article is, is accountability taking place where the discrete behaviors and, and the idolatry that goes behind them uh, are, are formal matters of, of conversation between two people, but transparency is, is kind of the mode by which that happens. We, we don't live our lives uh, in any way that would attempt to obscure or ob- obfuscate uh, what we're really thinking or feeling or doing. And you want to help them through modeling and expecting proactive accountability. And the, the hallmark of account, uh, proactive accountability, what makes it unique, is that it doesn't just focus on behavior. It focuses on being honest about what I want to do. It focuses on those idols, those desires. Uh, there are diagnostic questions that uh, you can ask someone to... Uh, help get to uh, the kind of the root of what's going on in their heart. And these are on page four in your handout. Um, Diagnostic questions like, what are the idols that are controlling my heart and my thoughts and desires today? In what uh, particular ways am I making room in my life for sin? In what particular ways do I need to be severe in cutting off the means to sin in my life today? That means you know, if I'm, if I'm tempted by a device, if I'm ten- tempted by a situation, if I'm tempted by having free time, how do I need to be uh, very deliberate and severe in, in making the possibility of sin as remote as possible? In what particular ways am I consciously denying the sovereignty of the Lord over me today? And in what particular ways am I refusing to submit myself to the ordinary means of grace in the church? For help in my struggle against sin. So those are just some, some questions that people can ask themselves and you can ask them to help them get to uh, the root of what's going on in their hearts. And there are more diagnostic questions in the proactive accountability um, article. And all of this takes place within the context of authentic relationship within the church. And that, that relationship is intentional, which means you don't just necessarily allow people to develop friendships based on shared interests, uh, but you, you, you work in a Titus II way to, as a leader in the church to match up more mature men with less mature men, more mature women with less mature women. And, and there's always someone in the church who is more mature or less mature than you are. And ideally, you, you would be in relationship with, with one of each. So that you're not only giving ministry, but you're receiving ministry from someone else. Uh, Leaders need to encourage that. These are generally same-gender relationships, which mean that men work with men, women work with women. And they progress uh, beneath the surface to get at the heart, and it's unbelief and idols. And it, it, it takes a while to get there because you have to grow in trust. You have to grow in uh, kind of the... the freedom of, of the relationship. The relationship has to mature over the point, or to the point rather, where you can begin to ask some of those heart-oriented questions with, uh, with greater ease. But over the course of a few conversations, hopefully you're getting to that point. You, you've developed that trust, you've established that mutual love, and, and you're beginning to ask the other person 
um, uh, why they do what they do. So what are some beginning strategies for reaching out and ministering to sexual strugglers in the church? The first is to preach and teach about specific applications of grace. Uh, And this just means that in your public ministry, whatever that happens to be, whether it's preaching, teaching, pastoral prayers, counseling, discipleship, uh, what you're going to do is talk about examples of how God's grace has worked uh, historically. There are so many illustrations you can use from Scripture. We, We looked at a couple of them earlier in the presentation. There are many, many others. Help. The, the people with whom you're working, the people uh, to whom you're preaching or teaching, understand that if God has worked that way historically, it's likely that he will work in their lives in the same way. I mean, if you look at a passage like uh, Isaiah chapter 43, one of the most humbling passages in, in Scripture, because Isaiah 43 comes after the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, where God is making this case against Israel for having transgressed the covenant that he made with them. And and then in chapter 43, he says, I love you. I I will be with you in the midst of all of your suffering. I will carry you through this. You will not be consumed. that's, That's the kind of understanding and application of grace that we need to help people really grapple with because the typical sexual struggler will not understand that intuitively. You want to demonstrate that this grace is for sinners, that this grace is efficacious in helping them to not only change their behavior, but helping them to change their hearts and their affections. And then you want to offer repeated public invitations for sexual strugglers in your church to come out of darkness and into the light. This is something that I encourage pastors and other leaders in the church to do on a regular basis. You can't just make one offer and expect people who have been in hiding for years or decades to suddenly come forward. Some might. But if you make repeated public invitations by saying, this church is a safe place, if you are struggling with pornography, if you are struggling with another pattern of sexual sin, if you are struggling with same-sex attraction... We will not judge you. We want to help you walk in faith and repentance. And so come forward, talk with myself, talk with, give the name of maybe one male or one female leader beside yourself, and and do that on a regular basis. And perhaps over the course of many months, some of the people in your church will become uh, convicted by the Spirit that they need to come forward and seek help. Communicate. Again, this church really is a safe place to find hope and healing. Identify specific people in the church for others to approach. The third thing you can do is offer training to your your elders, your deacons, your female leaders, your youth leaders, small group leaders to help them engage with strugglers of all sorts at a heart level. Uh, Harvest USA offers a number of different resources to do this, some of which you can find on our website at harvestusa.org others of which you can buy uh, and use. CCEF has created a number of different resources. Um, We would be more than happy to talk with you about ways that we can help 
you equip the people in your church uh, to do that. Fourth thing, make it an expectation. Make it an expectation in your church that everyone is in a small group under the care of an elder or another trusted mature leader. And the, the reason you want to do this is because you want people in community. The way that we walk in repentance is not as individuals, but within the context of community where there is increasing transparency and increasing humility. You want to set the expectation that church members will practice proactive accountability with one another. You, you want to... Uh, talk with other people in the church about the need for proactive accountability. Maybe what you can do is take the proactive accountability article and uh, sit down with your, your male or female leaders and walk through them. Uh, I'm sorry, walk through it with them over the course of a few weeks. Help them to begin to experience proactive accountability with one another and then encourage them to each develop a relationship with someone in their ministry spheres to begin practicing it over the next couple of months. As I said before, from Titus 2, you want to match up more mature men and women with younger men and women uh, for particular discipleship relationships. You, you want to offer confidential ministry, particularly for sexual strugglers and their spouses. People who struggle sexually uh, will often feel more comfortable uh, coming to a, a confidential ministry at Harvest USA. We, we help churches start their own ministries. We call them partner ministries. Jim in the back is actually the, the person at Harvest who um, uh, heads up that, that program. One of the benefits of having a specific ministry in the church for sexual strugglers and their spouses uh, is that uh, it offers... Um, I'm sorry, for some reason the notes don't match up with what's on the screen. Uh, but it offers a unique focus on the particular ways in which they struggle, and it helps them to break through some of the relational and spiritual barriers that keep them from having real, earnest, authentic relationships with other people in the church. And so uh, offer specific invitations for people in the church who are struggling to be a part of one of those ministries, and then uh, we would be happy to help you start uh, one of those ministries in your church. And then ask members of your church who have been helped by the Lord through a struggle with sexual sin or, or another kind of sin uh, to share their story publicly. The reason for doing that is you want to help folks in your church who are struggling uh, and, and feel as though they're hopeless to realize that there are ways that the Lord has worked in the lives of other people whom they know and whom they see on a regular basis. And again, you, you want to build off of the concept that if God has worked one way historically, he's likely to, to offer that same kind of love and support and encouragement in, in other situations and to other people. Uh, this provides encouragement and uh, support and a, and a redemptive pattern to people in the church who do struggle sexually. Uh, this is kind of a no-brainer, but if it's not part of your diaconal budget, you, you probably do want to be willing to pay for professional counseling uh, for individuals or families in your church if that's warranted. Uh, counseling can be expensive. And then seek out Harvest USA for help. We are a resource for the church 
to help you learn how to talk about these issues with clarity and with increasing effectiveness in your churches. Um, uh, some of the reasons why pastors and other leaders don't talk about sex and sexuality and gender and sexual struggle in the church on a regular basis is because these seem like such inflammatory issues and, and such complex issues uh, that they are really beyond your pay grade. Uh, and that's why we, we often either don't talk about them or, or just call in professionals. But the reality is that Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. He wrote to the Christians in Corinth. He wrote to the Christians uh, throughout uh, the, the known world 1,900 years ago and told them, this is something you need to address in your church, and the Spirit will give you the grace to talk about this in the ways that you need to do it. And, and God equips his church similarly today. Harvest USA is able to help you develop a, vo a vocabulary and, and to, to minister to folks in your church in a, a positive way, and we want to do everything we can do uh, to help you do that. So thank you so much. We're at the end of our time. Jim and I uh, are, are happy to stay here and answer any questions you might have. Before you go, let me remind you, if you want to receive the Harvest USA magazine, please fill out the Connect card and drop it in the gray basket on your way out. Thank you very much. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.